Antioch University's podcast. This is our series on Does Prayer, Does prayer Work? And Patrick's going to talk to us today about unanswered prayer. I believe the question is, do um, why do some prayers go unanswered? That's right. Thank you. So this is probably a question that some of you have wondered about from time to time. Maybe you didn't ask generally, why do some prayers go answered? But you asked, are you prayed a prayer and it went unanswered and you wondered why did that prayer go unanswered um so you know we asked back in episode two uh does god answer prayer and we spent a lot of time half an hour or so talking about can we know whether god answers prayers well it's pretty easy to know that god doesn't answer some prayers because sometimes we ask for God to do something and that thing doesn't happen. Uh, so that's a lot easier to know that God doesn't answer some prayers than that God answers some prayers. We've all had that experience of praying for something to come about and it just doesn't. Okay, so that's the thing that we want to think about today. So um, why? So it seems like sometimes when people wonder about um, why their prayers go unanswered, sometimes they're not just having a practical problem, like they didn't get what they want. Sometimes I think they take there to be a kind of theological problem here. What is that problem? Great. Yeah. So if I uh, pray a prayer and it goes unanswered, I might just be sort of frustrated at God that God didn't give me what I want. Or I might be have a deeper worry about what this says about who God is or whether God exists or something like that. And in that latter case, like you said, there's a theological worry that people have. So here's what I think is kind of going on. Um, When people worry about unanswered prayer, uh, it seems like what they're worried about is that God is withholding some good or God is allowing some evil Uh, to continue to obtain in the world. And it seems like it's intrinsically bad for God to do either of those things. So take an example. Say uh, I've got a friend who's deathly ill. uh, the, The friend is terminally ill. And I say the friend has cancer. And I ask God to heal my friend's cancer. I don't want the friend to die. That would be bad. And God doesn't. Well, it seems like a case where uh, God had the power to prevent the friend's illness. Uh, God knew how to do it. And uh, if God had wanted to, God could have done it, but God didn't. So there's something about the fact that we think that God is all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful that seems kind of inconsistent with the result of the unanswered prayer. But interestingly, that's just kind of an instance of a more familiar problem, something that we like to call in philosophy the problem of evil. um, Could you explain what you mean by that, the problem of evil? Sure, yeah. So uh, the problem of evil is a pretty long-standing a theological argument. Uh, so by calling it an atheological argument, I mean that it's an argument against the existence of God. It's probably the most or at least one of the most influential such arguments. 
And it's an argument that moves from the existence of evil in the world to the conclusion that God does not exist. So here's one uh, very old version of the problem of evil that I'll just kind of spell out a little bit and then we can kind of talk about uh, the problem and how it applies to cases of unanswered prayer. Uh, so t say if there is a God who is all-powerful, then that God would be able to prevent all evils. If there was a God who was all-knowing, then that God would know how to prevent all evils. If there was a God who was morally perfect or perfectly good, then that God would prevent all of the evils that God would be able to and would know how to prevent. So if there is a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and perfectly good, then that God would prevent all of the evils in the world. But if God prevents all the evils in the world, then there aren't any evils. But hey, there are evils. So there is not a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and perfectly good. And this version of the argument, uh, sometimes called a logical version of the problem of evil, attempts to show that the existence of a perfectly good, perfectly powerful, perfectly knowing God is incompatible, logically incompatible, with the existence of evil. So this version of the problem of evil is not defended very often these days. Um, and the main reason for that is uh, it has to do with what was premise three in your formulation. The premise which claims if there is a God who is morally perfect, then that God would prevent all of the evils that God is able to and knows how to prevent. The problem with this premise, as uh, various uh, philosophers have pointed out, is that sometimes um, an agent has a good reason for permitting an evil that they could have prevented and knew how to prevent. Uh, so just to take a, a mundane example, this example I'm borrowing from a philosopher named Nelson Pike, let's suppose that you're, you're the parent of a sick child and you're trying to make that child take its medicine. And the child doesn't like the medicine, uh, it's an unpleasant experience for the child, and the parent forces the medicine on the child against its will. Well, in that case, it seems like the parent could have you know, prevented the child from experiencing that unpleasant experience of taking the medicine, and certainly knew how to do that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the parent did something wrong or evil or morally criticizable by forcing the child to take the medicine. In fact, we would have thought the opposite. If the parent hadn't given the child the medicine, that would have been bad. Great. Yeah, so just like in the case of the medicine or vaccination or something like that, there might be situations where God permits us to go, or permits us to undergo some kind of evil or painful situation in order to prevent some worse evil or in order to secure some greater good. Mm -hmm. Or even because there's like some moral uh, requirement that it might not be related to greater yeah. goods or. Yeah, it might not be a consequence uh, calculation kind of situation. It might just be. Uh, a kind of in order to respect us or something yes, like that. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in order to treat us as people or something like that. Okay, so here's another version of the problem of evil, another version of the argument 
that tries to, it doesn't try to show that the existence of God is logically incompatible with there being evil, but it tries to, sh- to still uh, uh, get to the conclusion that God doesn't exist, and it does so by trying to skirt around this problem that God might have good reasons to permit some evils. So it says that if God exists, then there's a good reason for God to permit every evil that has happened. So, acknowledging that there might be some good reasons to permit some evils. But, there is not a good reason for God to permit every evil that has happened. So, God does not exist. That second premise is the important premise. It says, there's not a good reason for God to permit every evil that has happened. And the people who will push this style of the problem of evil, this style of the argument... We'll just say, well, look around at either all the quantity of evil. There's so much evil in the world. Or look at the quality of certain evils, the kinds of evils that are out there. And there are certain evils that you just can't imagine what good reasons there would be for God to permit those evils. Or maybe both, the quantity and quality of evils in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you think that's right, that there are couldn't possibly be the case that a uh, a perfectly good, all-powerful, all-knowing God would have a good reason for all of the evils that have happened, then you can still conclude that God does not exist. And so you can formulate the problem of unanswered prayer as an instance of this argument. And it would go something like this. If God exists, then there's a good reason for God... uh, not to answer every prayer that God has not answered. But there's not a good reason for God not to answer every prayer that God has not answered, you might think. So, God does not exist. Right. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the people who are worried about unanswered prayer might not be thinking that it shows that God doesn't exist. Maybe they're thinking it shows instead that God is not good. So, maybe they're thinking that if God is good then there's a good reason for God to permit every evil that has happened. Uh, But there's not a good reason for God, or excuse me, if God is good, then there's not a good reason for God not to answer every prayer that God has not answered. Uh, But there's not a good reason for God to permit, or for God God not to answer every uh, prayer God hasn't answered. So the conclusion is that God is not good. Maybe that's what people are worried about. That's a psychological question. Uh, What really worries people about God not answering prayer. But the important premise is, once again, premise two. Once again, the question is, is there a good reason for God not to answer every prayer that God has not answered? Um, Okay, so what are some of the ideas that people have that maybe solve that problem? Great, yeah. So there are two general strategies that people take for uh, responding to the problem of evil as uh, when it's formulated as an argument. So the first strategy is called theodicy. And obviously you want to take the theodicy because who doesn't want to go on a theodicy? (laughs) Um, So a theodicy is a way of giving a theory. It's a kind of master theory that explains exactly why God permits every evil that actually occurs in the world. So... We've already pointed out that there can be good reasons to permit some evils. Well, theodicy tries to say, 
uh, which reasons God actually has for permitting the evils that actually occur. Uh, so it's a very ambitious kind of approach to, uh, to solving the problem of evil. The people who are, are saying that, oh, there, you can't, there can't possibly be a good reason for God to permit every evil that has actually happened. The theodicy says, oh, well, yes, there is. And let me tell you about what good reasons there are. How about we give some examples of theodicies? Uh, yeah, sure. So I've got a couple examples of uh, sort of more recent theodicies that have been offered by uh, philosopher theologians. Um, and so we'll look at those and then see how they might apply to the case of prayer as well. So Richard Swinburne offers a theodicy that goes a little bit something like this. I'll give a kind of... Uh, uh, Reader's Digest version of it. So his claim is that a world where choices and actions matter is better than one where they don't. You could talk about a world that matters versus a world that doesn't matter. And a world that matters is a world that involves or uh, includes actions and choices that matter. Well, a world that matters requires the possibility of evil. Why is that? Well, because... If the world doesn't have the possibility of evil, then that's because uh, people can only are people are restricted to a certain range of action and uh, a certain range of choice, and that means that their choices and their actions don't matter. Uh, they're sort of artificially uh, attenuated. So that all they can do is good things, but then the good things they do are artificial in a way that the good, their goodness doesn't actually matter. You can imagine a kind of uh, a West World or a park of robots where everybody is set up to only be good to each other, but then the good actions of all the park, all the robots in the park seem. Uh, not to matter in any deep way because they were programmed to be that way. There's nothing at stake. Okay, so that's one thought, is that a world that matters requires the possibility, a really salient possibility of evil. It has to be the case that people can choose to do evil things for their actions to really matter and for the, thus for the world to be a world that matters. So why does this matter for prayer? Well, if God automatically answered every prayer to remove evil, then you can see how God would be forced into making a world that ended up not mattering. Why would that be? Because arguably people would just ask for evil to be gone. We do make sometimes really big asks in prayer. Sometimes we ask that oh, a big socio-political problem in a whole region of the world would be solved, that God would remove all of the evil in uh, China, or you know, uh, that's not a really well spelled out example, but you can kind of see what I'm getting at. And when we make big asks in prayer, if it's the case that God automatically answered every prayer, then you can see how quickly it would be the case that uh, the possibility of evil in the world would be eradicated. Well, but then the the world would cease to matter in the sense that uh, that Swinburne has in mind. So the possibility 
of evil and thus the requirement that God not answer some prayers uh, is is important for the world mattering. So that it's in Swinburne's mind, it seems like God has a choice between a world that matters or a world where God answers every prayer. And God, uh, perhaps uh, reasonably or, or in a way that's good, chooses a world that matters versus a world where God answers every prayer. Okay, so here's another theodicy. This comes from Eleanor Stump. And she has this idea about what's, what she calls psychic fragmentation. Do you want to say something about psychic fragmentation, Justin? Sure, yeah. So that's really just a fancy word for what everybody experiences at one point or another as like internal conflict, where you feel pulled in two different directions at once. You kind of want one thing. You also kind of want something else. And one important place um, where we experience this a lot is when we're tempted to do something wrong. Because, uh, at least according to Stump, we always have at least some draw towards the good. But also, sometimes we're tempted to do what we know isn't good or, or what is wrong. And the more that we actually do wrong things and uh, sort of reinforce a tendency to pull away from the good, the more psychically fragmented we become, the more like internally conflicted we become. And the, the problem with this, according to Stump, is that um, this internal conflict is a barrier to what's best for us. Because what's best for us as human beings is to be in union with other people, and especially with the perfect person, God. But psychic fragmentation is a barrier to union, because the more that you're internally conflicted and sort of divided against yourself... Um, that makes it the case that someone who wants to get close to you has a hard time because the, the closer they get to you, interpersonally speaking, the closer they get to like one side of that conflict in you, the more they come into conflict with the other side of that conflict with, within you. And so psychic fragmentation is a barrier to what's best for us on Stump's view. Great. Yeah. So uh, here, the, the idea about psychic fragmentation is the sort of uh, major conflict in the narrative of Stump's theodicy, the way the conflict is resolved, according to Stump, is that God utilizes suffering as a tool to heal or resolve this problem of psychic fragmentation. So according to Stump, suffering, undergoing suffering, allows us to heal psychic fragmentation. And suffering, in fact, has a unique capacity to make this happen. And she argues extensively for this in her book uh, from empirical uh, evidence and I think from some amount of biblical and theological evidence as well. Mm-hmm. So the idea then is that God justifiably allows suffering as a way to heal us, to use that as a, as a, um, a bomb or a tool to heal us of our psychic fragmentation. And then thus to allow us to become closer to each other, and most importantly, to be in union or friendship with God. So how might this apply to the specific case of unanswered prayer? Yeah, good. Yeah, great question. So uh, interestingly, Stump uh, addresses this in an earlier paper in a way that I think fits really well with what she says in her book. So in episode one, you might remember that we talked about 
what Stump's theory of the purpose of petitionary prayer is, according to a, an early paper in 1979. Uh, she, she says that petitionary prayer is necessary for God to bring about friendship between God and people. And explicitly or specifically, God wants to do this in a way that doesn't oppress us or spoil us. So God would oppress us if God did that in a way that didn't take our requests into account at all. That is, if God befriended us, but in a way that where God wasn't listening to what we wanted at all. So petitionary prayer is necessary in order for God to bring about friendship without oppressing us. But if God answered every single prayer that we made, God would spoil us. Uh, you can see how if, if the creator of the universe and the all-powerful, all-knowing God did everything that you asked, that would be a spoiling uh, effect in your life. That, especially once you began to realize the kind of power that you had over the creator of the universe. So... Um, yeah, it's really natural to think that God's sort of withholding from answering certain prayers is a good in in your life to prevent you from being spoiled. And you can also think about it in the in the way uh, we were just talking about earlier, not necessarily as uh, having to be securing some good consequence, but also just as a way of respect, uh, respecting people. So. We don't respect people by doing everything they ask. We respect them by uh, doing things that they ask uh, most of the time when the reasons are good, uh, you know, treating them as persons, not just as uh, machines that we, that we just automatically do everything they ask every single time. Um, likewise, we might think that God... Uh, uses the suffering of certain situations that, that, excuse me, that when God is using the suffering of certain situations to heal us of our psychic fragmentation, that God allows certain prayers to go unanswered because if he answered those prayers, that would impede that process of healing from the psychic fragmentation. So some theodicy can play a, a role in explaining unanswered prayer here as well. So that's the, you just gave two examples of theodicy. You said there were other solutions to the problem of evil. What, what is the second one? Yeah, so the other, uh, so, so yeah, the theodicy says, look, we can know exactly why uh, God permits evils, and let me tell you about the reasons. Well, alternatively, you might say, look, we shouldn't expect to be able to find God's good reasons for permitting every evil that has happened. And if we can't expect to know that, then it's then we can't conclude that there's not a good reason for God to permit uh, every evil that has happened. So this kind of approach is what gets called skeptical theism. It's skeptical because it it's uh, the idea that we just can't know what God's good reasons for permitting evils uh, would be. And there's a thesis about the kind of big difference between God's cognitive powers and our cognitive powers. God being a all-powerful, perfectly good, all-knowing being, and us being some pretty cognitively limited, uh, short-lived, 
you know, meat sex. Uh, <laughs> so the basic idea is that, look, we have no reason to think that the possible goods and evils we know of, which is just a very small subset, possible, well, it's, it's the, just the actual ones that we've encountered on Earth are all of the possible goods and evils there are. For all we know, there are uh, infinitely more possible goods and evils than the ones that we've experienced. So that those that we've experienced are not a representative sample of all of the possible, possible goods and evils that there are. And that we can't really infer much about how God reasons about uh, goods and evils and the connections between them from the goods and evils that we've experienced in the way that we reason about them. Um, the, the idea then is that even though uh, we know a lot about good and evil as it kind of applies to human life and animal life and plant life, and we can still uh, reason well about it and, uh, and try and act well in light of what we know, that we can't make any conclusions about the way that God reasons morally. Uh, because of the vast difference between what, for all we know, the moral landscape is like for us and what it's like for God and what our cognitive powers are like and what God's cognitive powers are like. Okay, so uh, the, the basic thesis is that we really just can't know what God's good reasons for permitting uh, evils would be. And so there's really no no reason <clears throat> that you could know that uh or that, that you could know the second premise of the problem of evil argument that we gave the premise that says there's not a good reason for god to permit every evil that has happened how does this apply to unanswered prayer great so it's pretty straightforward i think right uh in cases of unanswered prayer we're generally frustrated or worried because we think we know that the thing in question should have happened or that it was a good but if we don't if the skeptical theist is right and uh, our understanding of all the possible goods and evils that there are is very limited and god's understanding is complete then we really don't know uh if god we and we don't know and we can't know whether god has some good reason not to answer any given prayer that god doesn't answer so when, when the question is, is there a good reason for God not to answer all the prayers that God hasn't answered, the skeptical theist says, we can't know. So is that something that you think we as Christians ought to believe? Um, I, I think it's not unreasonable. I, uh, yeah, so I'm somewhat in favor of skeptical theism. I, th I think that the skeptical theist can still offer some ideas about a poss about possible theodicies, uh, like some plausible ideas about what God's reasons could be, because uh, a skeptical theist claim is just that we can't know what God's reasons for permitting evil are, in fact. Uh, but it still might help to think about what uh, possible reasons could be. And interestingly, in the case of petitionary prayer, it really does seem like the kind of situation where we can't know what reasons God has. Um, 
After all, it's part of the point of praying that we don't know ahead of time whether God will bring about what we're praying for or what, whether God has compelling reasons to do so or not. Um, after all, like, look, if you thought God was going to bring about the thing you were praying for, you wouldn't have reason to pray for it. That's the point of praying is to try and move God. And there's some amount of uncertainty in the idea of praying. And there does seem to be some kind of scriptural evidence uh, for skeptical theism. Paul points out in Romans 8, 26, that we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Um, so it seems like one way you can interpret that is just the idea that uh, we're really, we really are kind of off sometimes when we have an idea about what would be good for us, but God has a much better idea about what's good or bad for us. Mm-hmm. And in Isaiah... God says, uh, in Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. Uh, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that doesn't seem like bad evidence for the kinds of ideas that skeptical theists have.